0: Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. Welcome back to another episode of the Water Women Podcast. I am super excited, as always, about today's guest. I'm joined today by one of my old professors at university, Cassie. Hi, Casty, How are you today? Hi, Jill. I'm good. How are you? I'm so good. Now, you only taught me one class in university, but it was probably one of my favorite classes I've ever taken. The structure, the topic, everything about it. And I'm so happy you're here today. Uh, Do you wanna start off by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. And also thank you for saying that. That's so sweet of you. (laughs) Um, It's my favorite class to teach too. Um, So I am Cassidy Deloya, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of New Brunswick in St. John, Canada, where Jill was an undergrad. Uh, I'm a marine molecular ecologist, that's generally how I define myself, so I'm sort of generally interested in using different genetic methods um, to study ecological processes in marine populations. I'm a big scuba diver. Uh, I love doing field work. I also enjoy some lab work. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk to you today about dispersal and movement ecology and anything else that
0: you want to talk about. Absolutely. That was actually the topic of the class that you taught me was movement ecology. And we talked a lot about dispersal and stuff. And I think I liked it because it's one of my favorite topics. It's just so cool. And it's so broad. Like there's so many different ways you can go with it. And I also really loved the way you structured it. Like you did, we didn't have any uh, tests. It was a discussion-based course. We wrote, like we had a paper and I loved that. It really made me like want to learn the material more. Like as bad as that sounds for classes that have tests. like, (laughs) Like there was no pressure. And it just like made me, I think helped me fall more in love with the subject.
1: Yeah, that's nice to hear. I mean, I obviously am super biased, but totally agree. I think it's, um, well, we can talk more about it, but it's a topic that's interested me since I was your age. um, And basically, I have not strayed too far
0: from it since then. So when did you know that, like you said, you were about my age when you figured out this is what you wanted to do. How did you kind of pursue that? What was it that made you want to do this? And how did you take, what path did you take to get where you are now?
1: Yeah, do you want the long version?
0: <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Okay, um,
1: so I always loved science, um, but I never really knew what I was gonna do with that. Uh, when I was younger, I kind of assumed that I would be a medical doctor just because I didn't really know any scientists and I just kind of thought that was what people did who liked science. Uh, and I still think that's something I really would have enjoyed. But my first year of university, I had just this amazing prof who really changed the trajectory of my life. So I always try to think about that in my own <laughs> teaching and stuff. Um, but yeah, he, I, I actually distinctly remember calling my dad and saying, You know, I don't want to go to med school. I think I'm going to be an ecologist. And uh, my family was always super supportive of that, even though they and I didn't really understand what that would be at the time. Um, And so by the end of university, I kind of knew a few things. Um, I loved working with animals. I loved field work. I basically tried to take classes such that I would be outside all day, every day. Um, And I also became really interested in sort of how we could use genetics to ask some really cool ecological questions. Um, So I've always been very question driven and and it's basically since around that time has been very focused on these questions about, you know, how do animals move across landscapes, Um, what can facilitate those movements or impede those movements. And the reason why I think that's so cool is because it has so many subsequent effects on, you know, how population sizes change over time and, and the spread of genetic diversity and, and, it has big implications for conservation and all of that. So, um, so that's kind of how I guess I got interested in it. Is just a bunch of really great teachers um, who kind of like expanded my understanding of what it meant to be a scientist um, and and what kinds of questions you could pursue. So, yeah, I sort of landed there, and I've I've basically stuck with that for. I don't know, I guess 12 years or so um, in in different contexts and stuff. So as you can probably tell from that story, I am not one of the people who kind of like grew up obsessed with marine biology and the ocean, um, which I think is valuable for, I don't know, younger listeners to hear as well, because not all of us who are marine oh, biologists now, like, you know, grew up by the ocean or, or loved it. You can, interest always change. And um, yeah, that's kind of the path
0: I took. It's just so cool that you didn't have that hyperfixation and still found this and have fallen in love with it this way.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, I think it is true that most kids that you talk to do have some sort of intrinsic love of all things marine. Like if you've ever gone to give talks in an elementary school or something, it's so fun because you show them a picture of a shark or something and they kind of lose their minds. Um, so I'm, I'm sure I was interested in it at some point. It's just, you know, I, I actually don't even know how old I was when I first spent time on the ocean, which is kind of weird to think about, but I grew up inland. We never went to vacations near the ocean, you know? So it just like, wasn't really something I thought about a lot. Um, and then when I was deciding between PhD programs, I happened to apply to one marine lab and basically saw all these videos of field work and all the cool stuff they were doing and from then on I kind of was like wow this would be a really cool system to apply like you know my kind of interests in um, movement ecology and stuff so yeah
0: from there that's kind of when it changed for me. That's really cool like I love that so what was your PhD on what did you focus on what did you study?
1: Yeah, so my PhD research was all about larval dispersal, which I'm sure you know all about from class, Um, but (laughs) (laughs) ringing a little bell. Um, Yeah, so um, most marine organisms, not all, uh, but most marine fishes and invertebrates have this really interesting life cycle where... um, When they first start off their life, there are these very, very tiny organisms um, that often have the potential to travel really far in ocean currents. Um, And it's sort of been one of the great uh, challenges and mysteries in marine ecology over the last couple of decades has been figuring out sort of where these tiny fish or invertebrates Go and and how far they travel from their parents or you know the population they were born in, so that's what I was really interested in, um, and so I did a lot of empirical work, both field work and genetic work, um, studying one coral reef fish, uh, and and really figuring out its dispersal patterns, um, and so I've actually spent most of my career sort of exclusively studying and thinking about that one particular fish species, and I've learned so much from it. Uh, we're, in my lab, we're starting to branch out now, but but yeah, my, <laughs> my PhD research was very focused around these questions of larval dispersal and trying to figure out where, you know, where baby fish travel in the ocean. Um so, yeah, that, that's what it was. Uh, many, uh, the fish um, is endemic. Yeah, it's endemic to the Mesoamerican reef. So I was very lucky to spend most of my summers in Belize um, with a great group of uh, students and um, mentors. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's what I did for a long time.
0: Cool. So Belize to here, a little bit of a difference, just <laughs> yes. slightly in the temperature. yes. How, how has your research changed based on where you are, like Belize versus here in the Bay of Fundy? You, so you said you're branching out. What are you guys kind of looking at now in your lab?
1: Yeah, so um, that is a good question. It's been complicated by COVID, of course, um, because my two, uh, the first, my first two graduate students started in May of this past year. So um, the plans that we had are not really the plans that are happening right now as is true for many students. Um, so, uh, we had one project planned to basically kind of continue along the lines of what I had done previously, um, in the tropics, in, in some other fish species. And that's clearly been put on hold for a couple of years, but not indefinitely because in my heart of hearts, I will always be a coral reef ecologist and, uh, Uh, As much as I try to love the Bay of Fundy, there are limits. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think you have to kind of follow your passions to an extent. So that will happen at some point. Um, We are, you know, sort of broadly interested in how, um, you know, different life history traits of species interact with Sort of physical processes in the ocean and the geography of of different seascapes to sort of impact how organisms move and and how their genetic material gets moved. So we have one project um, on a really neat species of whelk in in the maritimes, uh, where one of my students is exploring sort of um, sort of how genetic material is exchanged among populations of this of this whelk in the Northwest Atlantic. So that, that is one project that has gone forward. And, and as you can see, right, like coral reef fishes, snails, different, you know, different taxonomic groups, but the questions are all kind of the same. Um, So, so I'm not hundred percent sure what, what we'll do moving forward, but you know, most of our work falls within um, this relatively young discipline called seascape genetics, um, which is sort of uh, analogous to landscape genetics, which might be something that some people are more familiar with. And it's, it's basically the study of, um, you know, how landscapes or seascapes interact with, um, you know, this sort of species traits to sort of impact um, connectivity between populations. So you know, very similar to stuff we talked about in movement ecology. And I'm interested in, you know, studying those kinds of questions in different places in the ocean and different kinds of organisms. So it's kind of cool to start working on invertebrates for the first time. Um, and I imagine that, you know, over the next few years, we'll kind of expand the taxonomic, um,
0: breadth of the species that we're studying. That's really cool how it's kind of all the same questions, but can be applied to so many different uh, groups and animals. And they're all going to like they're going to vary so greatly. Yeah, I think it's pretty neat. Um, I'm a
1: big fan of learning techniques from other disciplines or in other systems. Right. So there's lots of cool approaches that have been applied um, to terrestrial organisms, and sometimes we're like catching up a little bit in the marine environment. I think just because it's, in many <laughs> cases, harder to work in the ocean, right? Um, so yeah, we read a lot of of that literature and um, draw on very similar approaches. Uh, but I think you you kind of hinted at something neat, which is it's kind of cool to look at you know these kinds of movement patterns, connectivity patterns of a whole bunch of different species in a single part of the ocean, for example, to kind of really disentangle, you know, to what extent um, individuals of certain species kind of control their own destiny, right? Like um, do certain aspects of their reproductive biology or, um, you know, their sort of intrinsic capabilities of moving influence uh these broader scale patterns of of connectivity or you know does everything in the bay of Fundy kind of follow a similar pattern right um so those i i think over the longer term it will be will be kind of cool to compare those things you know across different species but one thing i'll say i have learned is that i really underestimated how hard it is to work in the Bay of Fundy, especially as a scuba <laughs> diver. So I have a huge appreciation for, you know, like the challenges of even just getting samples
0: and stuff around here. Uh, it's kind of next level. Wait, you mean in the Bay of Fundy, you can't just jump in, in like a bikini with the snorkel <laughs> and grab a sample?
1: Yeah, usually not. You know, you have to worry about things like you know
0: tidal currents and visibility and temperature. It's uh, it's definitely a challenge. I will say that when I started scuba diving was right before I went to Australia for the first time, and I did my pool work and everything here. And just the way it worked out that I I got to do my open water dives down there for the first time. So I was really lucky that the first time I ever scuba do or scuba dived scuba was in Australia, in this crystal clear, blue, sandy water. It was beautiful. And then I came back here and I got a very nasty surprise when I went scuba diving here for the first time. Yes,
1: it's it's a very um, special experience, I would say. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've actually, it's kind of funny. I've sent some messages to some of my old colleagues who I worked with in the tropics. And then, because um, uh, it's definitely a thing, right, where, I don't, you probably talked to lots of divers on your podcast. Um, tropical divers have sort of a reputation for being a little bit spoiled and not not really tough, you know, um, which is kind of fair. But, you know, everyone likes different things. So when I was a Ph.D. student in Boston, I infamously like, would never go diving in New England unless I absolutely had had to you know to get certain certifications i was i was really the worst um and so it's funny because my instructors from boston think it's absolutely hilarious that i ended up with a lab (laughs) in the bay of Fundy, you know trying to dive here um so yeah the transformation has been pretty dramatic for me but i will say like you know it's not the same for me but it's still fun um And I always love being underwater. So uh, particularly this summer with COVID, you know, we weren't research diving, but just I was kind of fun diving with people from New Brunswick. And it's just always so nice to be underwater um, for an hour or something, you know, and uh, so, so definitely, you know, not the same, but still fun
0: still perfect still great still
1: (laughs) yeah perfect perfect definitely
0: (laughs) (laughs) um so we've talked a lot about genetics and dispersal which when you first hear those two words at least in my head like they don't seem to go hand in hand like i think of genetics i think of our genetics and i think of dispersal i think of fish and snails and whatnot so how are you looking at dispersal like how how do those go hand in hand how do they work together Yeah, that's
1: a great question. And um, so there's different approaches Um, in terms of actually studying dispersal itself, right, which we can define typically natal dispersal is the movement of an individual from its birth site to its breeding site. Um, And that's a demographic process, right? It's it's the movement of an individual fish or an individual snail or an individual human or whatever, right? So the question is like, how can you use genetic data to actually look at the movement of an individual? And um, the way that we have done that is to try to really directly uncover individual dispersal events and uh, the way we actually apply that is through this approach called genetic parentage analysis, which is essentially the same as we we do in humans, right? if you were to do some sort of um, paternity analysis to figure out who the father of a certain human baby is right you're you basically go out on a very large scale typically, um, you collect tissue sample from thousands and thousands of fish or whatever else you're studying. And you use genetic data to basically come up with like a fingerprint, a genetic fingerprint of, of who that individual fish yeah. is, right? Using their DNA. And then you can say, okay, I have all these like young baby fish and I have all these um, adult fish and I basically characterize their genetic material. And I can look in those two pools and see if any of the young fish that I have were, <clears throat> excuse me, um, if their parents are are in that sample as well, right? So I'm basically directly tracing them to their parents. And so you can then say, oh look, I found, you know, parent lives on this coral reef, and then I found its offspring, you know, two kilometers down that reef. That's a dispersal event, right? And and if you do that enough times, uh, you can, you know, capture tens, hundreds, theoretically even thousands of dispersal events, and you can use that information to really gain a clearer picture of, you know, how far on average does a fish travel from its mom and dad? So that's that's one way of of addressing these kinds of questions, and and that's the approach that um i've used in a lot of my work along with like i say i but that that's a really massive project so that was done in collaboration with a whole bunch of people you know including like amazing students and fellow you know undergrads grad students wonderful boat captains um uh, my mentors my phd supervisor you know it's like a massive team to do that that kind of project um but but that is the basic approach um, if you're interested in the dispersal events themselves and then like there's a whole another set of approaches which is more commonly used if you if all you really care about is you know the the exchange of genetic material uh between populations you can kind of do that in a coarser way where you don't necessarily need to collect like five thousand fish you can probably do it with you know 500 fish or even less um so uh yeah. So yeah. does that answer your question yeah, that about, is you know, how you actually do cool it? That okay. you can
0: just kind of like, not randomly, but also randomly just figure out who is the father of these fish or who is the mother of these fish. Like that is so cool. Just by taking those, like, that is so cool. I can't even, wow. Yeah, it's
1: super neat. And, you know, kind of like a more, um, those kinds of data have really important implications for, you know conservation planning if it's a a fish that you know we're concerned about or something um but there's really cool kind of academic questions that stem from this too that i i'm really curious about you know like you know is it possible to you know reconstruct not just parent offspring relationships but pedigrees right um yeah. and there's actually been some really neat work where people have started to do that so you know it's not only just uh uh, parent offspring, but maybe you you can go multiple generations and now you've got grandparents and then you can kind of identify um, aunt uncles and cousins and siblings. Uh, so I just think that's so cool. Um, and uh, it's kind of a topic that I, I've been thinking about a lot over the last few years. Um, it, it definitely feels a little less applied to me, just kind of like a fun thing to think about. Um, but, you know, you can imagine that it, it might be important, right, because if you have really small, isolated populations um, that don't disperse far, then you're going to end up with lots of relatives, and then you could get inbreeding, which is generally yeah. not a good thing. Um, so I think there are some some cool applications of it, too. But yeah, it's, it's really fun, and it's kind of cool to see um, some of the work that's coming out, you know, by... PhD students who are
0: finishing now and uh, lots of cool projects on this topic Yeah, that is it's a much bigger picture than I originally imagined and like theoretically I'm like yeah obviously it's gonna involve all these fish but it really like in my head I was like oh you're looking at the genetics of a couple fish to figure out if they're related not like creating this huge almost like family tree of this reef like that is so cool
1: Yeah. That's also, that's like my dream. I aspire for that. But, you know, in most populations, that kind of thing is probably not realistic just because, um, you know, there's, there's so many organisms and, and generally, you know, a lot of marine species have the capabilities to disperse pretty far. So, so you would expect a lot of family groups would, you know, not end up super
0: close to each other, but it's still a fun thing to think about. Why does larval dispersal differ so much between certain individuals of this sp- being certain species? Like, why do some species of fish not disperse as far as others? And why do some stay so close to home and whatnot? That is
1: a very good question. And I will preface my answer by saying, I don't think we can definitively answer that question yet. But a lot of very smart people are exploring that topic. Um, Ooh, exciting. So, yeah. So one of the big things that certainly plays a very big role um, and is, was sort of for a long time thought to be the only thing that mattered is how long does, a you know, an individual fish of a certain species spend dispersing, right? This can vary greatly. So m- if you remember when I was saying that, you know, there's basically this very special early uh life stage called the larval stage in most fishes and invertebrates. Uh that's when they're dispersing and and the length of the larval phase can vary from you know sometimes just uh in the extreme a couple hours, sometimes you know 8 months, right? Uh and there's going to be variability within species, but you'll see stronger variability across species. So for example, uh, the The fish that I work on tends to spend a little bit less than a month dispersing. There are some lobster species that spend, um, you know, upwards of eight months. So you might immediately expect, right, the the fish that's only dispersing for a month on average doesn't go as far as the lobster that disperses for eight months. Just you know, in a simple context, that makes sense. The more time you're kind of living in these ocean currents that can push you really far away, the farther you'll go. Yeah. So that is certainly true to an extent, but I would say what we've learned, um, you know, over the last 15 years or so is that that's not the whole picture. Like it's very clear from the genetic data that um, that alone can't explain everything. And so, you know, people are coming up with more nuanced explanations. The big unknown still is, um, I would say, how the behavior of these organisms themselves can impact things. And this is really sort of tangential to my expertise. I have lots of good collaborators who work on this stuff, um, right? But people are trying to figure out, you know, how fast can larval fish swim and how do they orient? And, and like, at what stage in their development do these kinds of abilities um, kind of come to be? And you know, can they outswim ocean currents? Can they sort of decide where they're going to go? So, we're gaining a better understanding of all of that. But but I would say you know it's it's certainly predominantly influenced by local oceanographic processes. But we now understand that it's also, you know, can be impacted by the individual itself. And so really disentangling, like, the relative impact that those things have will ultimately help us understand, you know, why individuals go as far as they do and and why those patterns vary across species.
0: Cool. It always... Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It always amazes me that we know so much, but we know enough that we know that we don't know nearly enough, if that makes sense. And that, like, you can study this, and you're studying this from your perspective of expertise, but then you have other, like, you can't, like, you were saying, like, you need the people who are understanding the behaviors of the reef fish to even really be 100% sure about what you're saying. So it's really cool that we know so much without knowing as much as we need to, and that it's just everything kind of ties back together.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, it's a very um, interdisciplinary field. And I think you would find this is probably true for, you know, lots of people that you talk to that the nature of science has changed in some ways like you know a lot of the very challenging questions that we tackle now it's very hard to answer the whole question by yourself and so it can be really beneficial to form collaborations with others particularly people who have different expertise than you right so as someone who studies I'm mostly interested in the biology of organisms but I like to study organisms that live in the ocean therefore it's really good for me to work with people who, you know, have a strong expertise in, you know, physical oceanography, right, really understanding how ocean currents work. Um, And so, yeah, I've been very fortunate to have uh, some truly awesome collaborators. And in most of the projects that, you know, the bigger projects that I'm a part of, um, they tend to have people from different disciplines in marine science working together. Um, and, and studying dispersal is certainly a very uh, good example of that kind
0: of interdisciplinary work. You do. You said you like field work a lot. Do you have yes. any like? What is your favorite part of the, about what you do? Like you were talking about collecting samples earlier. So how do you collect these samples? Like what are you collecting for the genetic portion? Uh, everything like that. And why do you like the field work so much?
1: Yeah, I'm a fieldwork fanatic. Um, and <laughs> that's kind of why this year has been extra hard for me um, because, you know, I spent like five years doing lots of fieldwork during my PhD. And then I did two postdocs before I took the job at UNB. And they were really, I call them like computer based postdocs, where I honestly was at the computer for like three years in a row um which was awesome because I learned so much um working with you know more quantitative biologists and spatial ecologists but I was so excited to start my own lab to do field work again because I think if you talk to lots of people um they like lots of things about their jobs but sometimes people have like one or two things that they really love right and for me it's you know, no questions asked being in the field. Like there is just nothing for me that compares to the feeling of diving on a coral reef, right? A, because it's just so fun. And, um, you know, sometimes you just think like, I can't believe this is my life. Um, but B, I, I honestly think personally, like my best, um, like research ideas have really come from being immersed in the field and, like, you know, being one, um, we're not marine organisms, but you, to the extent possible, you try to like put yourself in that environment. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, um, it's super fun. And so I was definitely bummed that we couldn't do that this year, but you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's fine. And, you know, we're all fortunate to be, um, healthy and, and still productive in my lab. Um, so I don't know, maybe that answers your question about, you know, generally, do I like field work? Yes, I'm totally crazy about it. Um, there's always challenges to starting a new field project, you know, in terms of, you know, the using fieldwork to ask questions in molecular ecology, which is generally what I do at the end of the day, all you really need are tissue samples from the organism that you're studying. And, you know, ideally some measurement of like, where did you catch this organism? And and maybe some things about the habitat or things like that. So yeah, you're always thinking about um, how do I find species X? How do I catch species X, you know? And then like, what is the best way to get tissue from them? So Every time you start a new project, it's different. Um, working with reef fishes was particularly fun because uh, I don't know if I ever showed you a video of this, but uh, we basically came up with these. Um, it's going to sound bad when I say it. Uh, they're called slurp guns, They're really just like these suction things that, you know, you can stick it inside of a sponge, for example, and pull on it. And it just like sucks up the the fish, for example, that lives in a sponge. Cool. Um, but yeah, I've, this is an aside, but I've learned to be careful in in using that terminology because when I was getting like animal care approvals, you know, people were like, what do you mean you're using a gun? What is this? And I'm like, no, no, no. It's just very, very simple thing. Um, yeah. So like, I can't even count the number of hours that I've spent with my dive buddies um, sucking fish out of sponges to to take off little pieces of their tail. Uh, so, so that's what we do with, um, with fishes. Um, you know, my students could tell you some fun stories of this summer, trying to figure out um, how to catch uh, whelk. Um, and they've come in up with sort of their own challenges uh, working here in Atlantic Canada, uh, because it's, it's truly a subtitle organism um, but we were not allowed to dive, you know, under scientific diving this summer. and so their big challenge has been, how can you catch a subtitle organism if you're not allowed to scuba dive and if um, uh, for various um, reasons also can't get permission to like throw traps underwater? So so they've had an interesting time with that. Um, and uh, they've had some adventures kind of like driving, all along the coasts of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia at really low tides, like a really good low tide. Um, and basically, you know, right at the low tide mark, kind of like, you know, just getting the edge of where you start to see subtitle organisms and seeing if they can kind of grab enough of them. But they, my understanding is they spent a lot of time in the car driving um, with, with very low success rate, um, So it's always a challenge when you're when you're starting um, a new project in a new species and, and particularly for us, like in a new area where you haven't really worked before. So definitely relying on local knowledge. I spent most of the summer sending emails to anyone I could think of trying to get advice or, you know, help finding samples and stuff. So it's always a little bit of an adventure. Yeah,
0: that must be very interesting trying to find like workarounds especially now where you're gonna have to find them for such like you would never think in years before like oh all of a sudden we're not allowed to go outside and do field work like unless the weather's really bad so now trying to find like workarounds for exactly. that like must be so interesting and very fun it's
1: definitely required us to be creative and anytime that it's felt frustrating, I've tried to remember, you know, relatively speaking, in Atlantic Canada, we've been very fortunate, particularly last summer. You know, we had much greater access um, to lab facilities, right? Because we had, you know, this is tangential <laughs> to your podcast, right? But it, you know, it, it's been hard for lots of grad students yeah. to get work done. Um, and, you know, being able, being right on the coast and, and having our little Atlantic bubble where, you know, people could at least travel within a couple of neighboring provinces. It really helped a lot. So we try to keep oh, that in yeah. perspective, right? Like things are not normal, but we've been able to do, still do a fair bit. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, I was in talking spite to my of roommate the other
0: day and I was like, I'm so annoyed with COVID. And I just stopped myself. I was like, how, lucky am i to be in a position where i can be annoyed by it and not completely awfully affected by it in a way that it's ruining my life and just to the point where it's like oh this is such a huge inconvenience in my life we are so lucky here
1: we are lucky yeah and you know in terms of uh you know existing in graduate school and still having fun you know that's kind of the challenge is like how can we um you know, still have fun lab dynamics, given that, like, we can't necessarily, like, have a barbecue and all hang out together and stuff, right? Um, but that that's the same thing facing everyone. And we're lucky because, you know, we can, depending on where you are in St. John, within a couple of minutes, you can be on a beach and at least be yeah. seeing the ocean or, you know, diving or swimming or, you know, probably less so this time of year. But for sure, it's been... Very nice to be
0: in a coastal Absolutely. place. That was one of my saving graces this summer is being able to be out on the water and be near it and not have to be like this past like month where I've been like, I've been living in Fredericton, like no water around. And I'm just kind of like, okay, I'm ready to get back to the ocean now. <laughs> like uh, This is out of my element really. It's true. Yeah. Like now that I
1: have lived right on the coast, um, you can definitely understand why people who grew up on a coast really, really want oh, to yeah. stay there, right? It's it's pretty great to be
0: this close to the ocean. Absolutely. Do you have any moments of your field work that are really like standout moments, like something happened while you were in the water or anything like that, that are kind of like moments you'll never forget, like unreal moments almost? Um...
1: There's so many good ones and some, you know, there's always some adventures too. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. I think um, it's a little bit weird because when you spend so many hours working underwater, it's almost like you become accustomed to how awesome it is and, and even like spectacular things. You're just like, oh, yeah, there's another turtle. Cool. (laughs) Um, You know, so I sometimes think back to, I think, my first real field season. uh, I probably would have been 23 at the time. That was, like, magical for me because it was so new, right? Like, every single dive, you're learning about new species. You're seeing things for the first time. Um, I also got really lucky my first year, like we saw dolphins, we saw, I remember we saw a group of manatees wow. once, and I don't think I ever saw them again, <laughs> um, underwater at least. Um, so those kinds of moments are just like, we work really hard underwater, but sometimes there are some, you know, creatures that come by that are just so cool that, uh, you kind of have to stop, um there's, you know, everyone has things they love. Um, I really, really love puffer fish. So, uh, like whenever I see them, my dive buddies know that I have to stop working, um, and just kind of like hang out with the fish for as long as it will be near me. Um, but yeah, like so many wonderful moments underwater, um, And I think there's also something really special about field teams. Um, If you're working with people that you really like, you're kind of living in this weird universe where, you know, the center of your day is like staring at a sponge underwater (laughs) or something, which kind of can be boring to family members and stuff when you call them. But you're kind of in this weird little bubble, or at least I was for many years, um, with just a handful of people that I really care about, um, working very hard, but also, um, yeah, just living in these beautiful places and developing really important friendships um, that's, I think, just very special. And it's I'm looking forward to being able to share that with um, students when it's yeah. kind of safe to do that. But I have many people, um, you know, working in Belize was um, such a wonderful experience um, in large part because, uh, you know, some of the people from Belize that, you know, worked with us as part of our team, either, you know, as boat captains or like the cooks on the island um, just became really um, important people in my life and like really good friends Um and so, yeah, I think it's just lots of, lots of very special moments. I, I kind of wish like, um, you know, all the other people in my life could experience, yeah. you know, some of those field seasons because it's, it's just very different from, I don't know, like what my life is like during a typical yeah. semester teaching at UNB. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's super fun. And uh, as much as I love tiny little coral reef fish, you know I still I'm a normal person I still get excited every time we see a shark or you know big turtles like
0: but it's it's really cool it's really see that cool stuff. and I always find when you're underwater even if you're like working underwater you kind of have to like take a second and be like I'm breathing underwater right now that is so rad and then like look around and enjoy what's around you because everything moves so quick in the ocean that like you might see an animal for a second. And then like with your, with the manatees, like you said, you saw them once and haven't seen them again. So if you hadn't taken that time to like just enjoy that and then take it all in and nobody's going to understand that feeling except for the people that you're with. So you do create those like really intense bonds.
1: Yeah, totally. I often wonder what cool things have swum above me while I've been staring oh, at a sponge. Gosh. Like there's probably been a lot of cool stuff. <laughs> Yeah. Fieldwork is awesome. I think like yes. one thing I think about sometimes when I'm working underwater is like, um, it's just such an interesting way to explore part of our planet that relatively few people get to experience. Right. Um, yeah. and you know, cause it's not really our world. Um, so you almost feel like you're kind of just observing, um, yeah. you know, there's this entire ecosystem that we're not really a part of. um, You're the alien here. Yeah, like we're, yeah, exactly. We're the aliens. So it's kind of fun to be like an alien and just kind of (laughs) explore a different part of the planet.
0: My favorite thing is like, you'll look at a fish or an animal down there and be like, wow, you're really weird looking. And then they're looking at you being like, wow, you're really weird looking too. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Now, if you had a little girl who was listening to this or a young woman listening to this and she wanted to study what you were doing or study what you were studying and do what you do would you have any advice for her about what to do how to go about it where to start what to be looking at or anything like that
1: uh well I think you have to Okay. I have two answers. One is going to make you laugh and you're probably going to remember this from class, but you know, you have to, to a certain extent, follow your own passions and your own interests. And, um, if it's something you're really passionate about in a, depending on, you know, what, what aspect of marine science you want to pursue, there's all different kinds of opportunities. Um, you know, in terms of what I do, like I am an academic researcher. So there are practical steps that, you know, you could take, which is mostly, you know, get to know your professors, you know, try to get some research experience. Um, Those kinds of things are are what's going to sort of create research opportunities for you if that's what you want to do. You know, if you are interested in just being a scientific diver, maybe there's like a slightly different path for you. Um so there is a whole I guess my practical advice though <laughs> is um <laughs> take math classes and don't stop oh. taking math classes, which I know is going <laughs> to make you laugh. Um I think that is like it's certainly my biggest regret in life and I think that uh, many marine biologists and other types of marine scientists would say the same thing. And so no one said it to me when I was kind of young. And I really liked math. Um, I just like didn't think it was useful for my career path. And I could not have been more wrong. So I would say that that is important um, in so many fields if you're interested in research at all. Um, and <laughs> we can talk more
0: about that sometime. And it made me laugh when you said that in class because I was like, "Here she is telling me this in my last semester of my last year when I have taken a total of one math class because I don't like math. I took <laughs> a couple stats classes, but no, like math, math and stats are just not my thing. Which you were like saying, you're like, take as many math classes as you can. I was like, uh oh, I'm already in my fifth year. Maybe let's not do a sixth year. You can, you know, you can always learn though. Um, Yes. Yeah,
1: no, I teach, you know, now I teach the first year marine science class at UNB. And so I think hopefully they listen to me, but I think they think it's kind of funny because I just will like throw it into random slides. I'll be like, (laughs) (laughs) I think I did that in our class too. Like, I'm going to tell you this verbally, but here's some equations that you would actually use if you really want to do this. Because I think, um, you know, it's sort of important to instill those thoughts, like at a, at an early part of your career so that, you know, at least if you're sort of interested, you might pursue it. Absolutely, Um, but I don't know, everyone has different approaches. It's very hard to give general advice. I've always been like a super question driven scientist, right? Like that's how I, I happen to end up working in the ocean. So I don't really have advice about like, you know, fostering a young love for the ocean or something. (laughs) I think, um, yeah, so I've just always followed the questions that I find to be the most interesting and sort of gained the skills along the way to to answer those questions.
0: I like that. I like to follow the questions. I love your advice about going to talk to your professors and creating relationships with your professor professors because that's one thing that has been so helpful and important with me is being able to talk to my profs and have them see me as like, a person rather than a student and it's been super helpful and to know that at any time I could reach out to one of you guys be like hey I need some help with this project could you provide me with some insight or anything like that and even like you and Ben following me on Twitter really stops me from tweeting some really stupid stuff sometimes because like, oh, I can't, <laughs> let them see can't let them see that no but it is very important to have that like rapport between you and your professors and be able to go talk to them and ask for help. And I think that's amazing. And You never know what opportunities are going to come from it.
1: Yeah, totally. It's something that I really enjoy about um, UNB St. John is, you know, Mm. especially by the end, you get to, especially, you know, with the marine biology majors, I know most of them, right? Um, And teaching first year, it's kind of fun because you get to meet them when they're first starting out. So, yeah, those relationships can be really important. And I think, you know, as I explained, my own career is sort of like a testament to sometimes the profound effect that like really good teachers can have on your path. Um, And so, Mm. yeah, it's uh,
0: it's important for us to be mindful of that as well, I think. Absolutely. And to go off that, I think it's important to note that the impact that bad teachers can have on you because there's been a couple things that I've done purely out of spite because somebody told me like somebody told me that I would never research whales and that I couldn't like it's just too competitive and that I would never be good enough to do it and I was like okay okay except I'm going to so we'll see about that yeah enjoy that you know like use that if you can take take motivation where you can find it exactly (laughs) So, if people wanted to follow along with you on your scientific journey and all your research, is there anywheres on social media that they can find you and follow along? Oh my god, I'm so bad with this stuff. Um, I have a pretty outdated
1: website, um uh, dot com, but that's you know really just for you know prospective grad students maybe. Um, I have a Twitter. Um, I'm really bad at it, and I don't actually know my Twitter. I think my Twitter handle is C underscore Deloya, um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm trying to get better at it, and just. Do you have any tips?
0: <laughs> I well, I'm also trying to get better at a scientific Twitter, so maybe if anyone listening has any tips, we would both love to hear it.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so that's that's really all I have. I try to keep like a low profile. I don't have Facebook and stuff. Um, it's just like too much for me. Um, But yeah, no, definitely um,
0: would love to hear from people. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Cassidy. It was awesome to have you on, and I'm super excited to share this episode. Yeah, it's so nice to be here
1: and also to just see you kind of kicking butt doing your podcast. Um,
0: Yeah, I wish you all the best. Oh, thank you thank you so much for listening to another episode of the water women podcast if you enjoy the podcast don't forget to rate and subscribe to it you can also follow us on all of our social medias you can find us on facebook and instagram at water women podcast and on twitter at water women pod you can also find more behind the scenes info on our website water i am so happy to keep sharing these stories of different water women each week with you and until next week Stay salty.